Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 7. Over the next several weeks, we'll be dealing with this theme, uh, Advent motifs and why they matter. We're in Advent season and we're, we are uh, celebrating the arrival, the first arrival, and also the, the, the second and final arrival of the Lord Jesus. And so uh, we're just kind of wanting to orient our hearts uh, around some themes that are important for us to consider. Today, I want us to consider this, the themes of gloom and gladness. Now, these two things are tethered together if we're going to rightly um, honor the arrival of the Lord Jesus. We're going to use Isaiah, and so I want to just encourage you to have your hand there, and at, uh, early on in the sermon, I'll kind of put it in its context, but this is God's Word. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Pray with me. Father, we are a needy people, and you are a need-meeting God. We desperately need uh, your word to penetrate not only our mind and our ears, but also our hearts. Make us a people, Lord, who hear and gain understanding. Make us a people, Lord, who hear your word and respond with faith and obedience. Father, we do pray that your word would come upon us and that it would drive away the darkness and the gloom that we encounter with living in a broken and fallen world. We are broken and we are needy. We are being put back together by the grace of the gospel and the inner workings of your Holy Spirit. And so make us, Lord, a people who uh, the, our bones are becoming alive and we are seeing and thinking and behaving in a way, Lord, that, that honors your name. Would you be pleased to use your servant and the means that you give to us? Forgive us of our sins, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you paid attention to the lyrics of the songs that we sang this morning, there are two themes that are going to stand out. One is gloom. We just sang, O come, O come, Emmanuel. And just listen to these words. O come, thou dayspring from on high, and cheer us by thy drawing nigh. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night, and death's dark shadows put to flight. Lay that on top of the first song we sang, where we're singing about joy. 
And what you're getting is these two things that, that matter, that are important, that help us to understand how we ought to be feeling during this season. It's a mixture of gloom and a mixture of gladness. Now, these songs sound radically different than what you might hear in the mall. Spotify worked with a company in the Netherlands to compile the most popular songs on people's playlists who use Spotify. Spotify has 300 million users. In 2020, this research company compiled a list. These songs show up at this percentage on 300 million users, not just in America, but across the world. So here's the top 10. Holly Jolly Christmas, Michael Buble, that's number 10, 17%. Little Saint Nick, the Beach Boys, 17.2%. Christmas Baby by Mariah Carey, 17.4%. Blue Christmas, Elvis Presley comes in at number seven at 20%. Underneath the tree, Kelly Clarkson, 21% at number six. Santa Tell Me, Ariana Grande, 24%. Happy Christmas, John Lennon, 24%. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas, Michael Buble, 26%. It's the most wonderful time of year, Andy Williams, almost 30%. And the queen is Mariah Carey, (laughs) right? All I want for Christmas, 43% of people who made Spotify playlists put that song by that artist on their list. Now, I was in the car shop yesterday and the number two song by Andy Williams came on the Spotify playlist. And the guy next to me starts humming the song. And I'm thinking, no way. Of all places in a car shop, that song that's number two in the world comes on. I said, okay, well, let me get my phone out and let me Google the lyrics. Here they are. It's the most wonderful time of the year. The kids jingle belling and everyone telling you be of good cheer. It's the most wonderful time of the year. It's the happiest season of all with those holiday greetings and gay happy meetings when friends come to call. It's the happiest season of all. There'll be parties for hosting and marshmallows are toasting. It's the most wonderful time of the year. There'll be much mistletoeing or heart will be glowing when loved ones are near. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Now, what's wrong with the song? There is no gloom. And the happiness and goodness of Christmas is totally horizontal. The deep gladness you want is found in children Friends, parties, and romance. If, when, if music is a window into the soul of a culture, then this means that 30 million people on the earth have no idea of gloom that we need to account for and the only source of true gladness. The Bible is going to have us singing a different song, a song that 
acknowledges the darkness and that simultaneously points us to the light. And I want to use Isaiah. Now, what's happening? Because we're parachuting down into Isaiah. What's going on in Isaiah? Isaiah was a prophet some 700 years before Jesus, and he foresaw by the Spirit the arrival of Christ. Now, if you have your Bibles, please do something with me. Turn over to Isaiah 7, because I don't think you can understand the the gravity of Isaiah 9 without seeing this theme of sons that's building up to this preeminent son that God himself will send. Now, notice what's happening in Isaiah 7 through 9. Isaiah 7 begins in the days of Ahaz. He was actually a good king until the end. The son of Jotham, the son of, of Uzziah, who was the king of Judah. So at this point, the kingdoms are split. You have Judah and you have Israel to the north. And so uh, Ahaz is the king of Judah. Now notice what's happening. Rezin is the king of Syria. And Pekah, notice that, that word again, the son of Ramaliah is the king of Israel. So now you're starting to see that there is warring and feuding happening between who? Between the sons of Judah in the south and the sons of Israel in the north. And the sons of Israel in the north have actually entered into an agreement with this pagan king to help them go do battle. So that's the backdrop. Now notice all of this language about sons. Look at, look at Isaiah 7, 3. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go meet Ahaz, you and your son. Go down to Isaiah 7, 4. He was afraid because of the fierce anger of Rezin and, the, and Syria and the son of Ramalia. Look at verse 5. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia, they want to set up another king. Look at verse 6. They want to set up the son of Tabil as the king. In other words, what's happening? Why all of these sons? This is intergenerational family war that's being passed down from kings and their sons and their sons and their sons. And the looming question in Isaiah 7 and 9 is, will a son come who can restore peace? Will a son come who can fix what is broken? Is a son going to come and bring an end to the gloom and the darkness? And Isaiah is told, yes. He's told, yes, in Isaiah 7. Here's the sign, Isaiah. I'm going to send a son, and he's going to be born of a virgin, and you will call his name Emmanuel. That's Isaiah 7. And then this same son comes up again in Isaiah 9, and you will call his name Wonderful Counselor. You will call his name Mighty God everlasting father, prince of peace. It's the same son. And now notice what's what's in the middle. There's this mysterious other son who's born. Look at it with me. The Lord said to me, this is Isaiah. Look at verse three of chapter eight. And I went to the prophetess. We think this might've been Isaiah's wife and they conceived and she bore a son. And the Lord told me what to call this son, call this son, Maher Shalal Hasbaz. Y'all say that with me. Maher Shalal Hasbaz, right? Say that, right? You got it. That's, that's one of the points of the sermon. Now, what does his name mean? His name means the spoil speeds along and the prey hastens. In layman's terms, y'all about to enter gloom and darkness. As a matter of fact, God told him, 
before your son can say, my mother and my father, the darkness will be upon you. What? That's what his name means. Now, why? Why are these two themes held together? This is the two, ser- the two points. One son is a promise and a reminder. You will experience gloom. As sure as this son was born, before this son could say mama and daddy, Israel and then Judah would have endured tragedy upon tragedy upon tragedy. But I'm sending another son. And you'll call his name Emmanuel. And he will be your wonderful counselor, everlasting father, mighty God, prince of peace. And the question before us all this morning, which son are you affiliated most closely with? Because if you only are under doom and gloom and darkness, and you haven't found refuge in this second son that Jesus is giving, I'm telling you that darkness will overwhelm you and it will overcome you. There is one son who drove back the darkness. There is one son who came to his own. His own rejected him, but the light triumphed over darkness and it's in Jesus. And if you are not in Jesus, this world will eat your life and have your lunch. And so what I want to show you in the passage is that it's fitting. Advent invites us to stare gloom and darkness in the face and to not belittle it, to not diminish it, to not deflect, to not numb, but to actually own that life on this side of eternity is going to be hard. And the birth of the Messiah is a reminder that glory and gladness is coming. Let's look at this birth of Meher, Shalal, Hashbaz as a reminder of gloom. Now, why would God say that? Why would God say, hey, have a kid, name him this, and before he speaks your name, you will see darkness, and it will, be, it will stretch long and deep. Israel will be carried away in Assyria, and, and a couple hundred years later, you, Judah, who was faithful, you're going to be carried away into Babylon. Why that? What's going on in the book of Isaiah? Just go read Isaiah 1 through 7. You'll see that they were hearing and never understanding that they were selective in what they obeyed. They were consulting necromancers and diviners and false councils and false elders. They were selective in their obedience. They were not a just people. They were ungodly. They refused to repent. They refused to hear. And so William Van Gimmeren, he actually says this, that Isaiah opens with the charge that Israel has spurned the Holy One of God. They are guilty of folly and rebelliousness. They are insensitive to his punishment. They are selective in their obedience of God's instructions, and they are guilty of judgment. And when you read Isaiah 1 through 7, you'll notice that the scope of their gloom is multifaceted. Their hearts and minds are darkened vertically. And the darkness is creeping in upon them horizontally. That arrows and bows and death and destruction is about to come upon them from the Assyrians. 
You notice that there is darkness over creation. Their fields that should produce food will only produce thorns and briars. You notice that there is, there is darkness internally, that they're going to start going out and consulting medium and mediums and talking to the dead, that the nature of the darkness that they are about to experience, it touches every aspect of their lives. And we can read this one of two ways. We can put them on a stand and say, how could you? You are ignorant. You are foolish. You are wrong. Or we can read the Bible like Jesus tells us to read it. Lord, have mercy on me. That's me. I'm selective in my obedience. I don't take your judgments seriously. That, that, that I consult and reach out to other idols and other gods. I don't love neighbor like myself. That we could put them on the stand. And what we ought to be saying is, that's me. And that's the world I live in. Let me give you a window into the darkness this week. Just in my life. Last Saturday at 4.37 a.m., two men with weapons walked in my driveway again, checking our vehicles to see if they were unlocked. And my kids were sleeping one wall away from where they were. You know what that feels like as a dad? To hear your daughter say, Dad, I heard something and to not know the next day what was happening, that's dark. There's a car in our parking lot right now, and a young man is missing, and his family has come all the way from Illinois looking for answers, and he suffers from bipolar disorder. He is off his meds, and the police are involved, private investigators are involved, and we can't find him. Last Sunday when I got home from church, my brother called me, a college friend of ours, was murdered in Buckhead, and his body was thrown outside of the car and discovered the next day. Just this week, one of your own members in this congregation's dad was murdered in West Jackson. Just this week, some of your own members witnessed what we think was sex trafficking. A pimp showed up on the rear of our parking lot, and young girls were walking car to car saying, I need money or he's going to harm me. What does this do to you when you see this? Doesn't it remind you how dark this world is, that some of you, when you hear it's the most wonderful time of the year, it's not the most wonderful time of the year because romance is not in your future and you can't conceive and you aren't being invited to Christmas parties. When you hear that song, you want to turn it off. On top of this, do you know that Christmas is the deadliest season of the year? American Health Association did a groundbreaking study, and they looked at people who died 
53 million people from December the 25th to January 7th, from the years of 1973 to 2001, and it was statistically validated that the mortality rate of people who die because of cardiac complications, they spike during this season because of stress, because of depression, because of poor eating habits, because of delaying going to the doctor. This is not the most wonderful time of the year. Death does not take a break because it's December the 25th. What do you do when you hear this and you see this? Do you feel it? Advent is an invitation, Redeemer, to look darkness in the face and to not numb it, deflect, or minimize the reality that on this side of eternity, our lives are filled with gloom and sorrow and sadness and fracture and brokenness. And if you never find refuge in the other sun that we're about to talk about, this darkness of this world, it will prevail over you. It will crush you. It'll make you doubt God. It'll drive you to despair. It'll drive you to revenge. It'll drive you mad. Paul Tripp says, the evidence of brokenness is everywhere, from the inner recesses of our own hearts to violence and corruption in government to the existence of plagues and diseases. He says it would have been just for God to stay his distance. It would have been a just response to the arrogant rebellion that brought this brokenness into the world. But one of the most gorgeous mysteries of God's sovereign grace is that he looked upon his broken, rebellious world with eyes of mercy. With eyes of mercy. God says, I don't want this to be their reality. I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to look upon the world with tenderness and love and hope, and I'm going to intervene, and I'm going to bend back the darkness, and I'm going to send the light of my son, and the darkness cannot overcome him. He will stare in the face and go to a cross and die, and he will bring a dawn of a new day where his people can walk in light and not in the torment of sin and death and captivity and rebellion, that we can actually walk in the newness of life. And so Advent is about honoring the darkness. It is about seeing the brokenness, but it's also about seeing the hope and the light that is ours in another son. And it's not Mahal, Shabal, Hasbad, right? It's in the Messiah, Lord Jesus. And so the birth of the Messiah, Redeemer, is a reminder to you and to me of true glory and true gladness. And you see this theme, right? Look at it. Look at it in verse 9, chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom. Look at it right there in in chapter 9, verse 2. In the latter time, he will make the way glorious. Look down in verse 3, that they will be glad. In other words, there's a a, a transformation that's happening. And you see it almost, it it looks like Ephesians 2, where, where, where Paul says, and we were by nature children of wrath, and he just dives down into the human condition, and then he says, but God, but God being rich in mercy. This is, it's written the same way. Look at how chapter 8 of Isaiah ends. 
and they will look on the earth, but behold, distress and darkness and the gloom of anguish, anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. And then look at the pivot, but God, but there will be no gloom for her in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt, but in the latter time he's making a way glorious. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who dwell in deep darkness, on them the light has shone. You will multiply our nation. The, the briars that grew up, you will give us a plentiful harvest, everything that makes it dark and gloomy in the, in the earlier, God is going to do something new in the latter. Stop and take this in, Redeemer. A day is coming where there will be no missing persons. Sex trafficking will be no more. Locking your doors at night will be no more. There'll be some businesses that will not translate into the new heavens and the new earth. Sig Sauer, Smith & Wesson, Ruger, arms manufacturers. You don't have a job in the new heavens and the new earth. Those who make caskets, those who plan funerals, those who do enforce the law. That can you ponder this? That some of us, that what we do right now for a living it does not translate to where we're going. You're going to have to learn new trades. You have to go back to school and learn a new skill because the kingdom that Messiah is bringing in, we don't need those things. There will be sin and suffering and darkness and crime and death and violence. It will be no more. And we don't need politicians anymore because this says that the, the shoulders of the government of the entire world will rest on the shoulders of Messiah. So think about that. So many of us will have to retool ourselves and what we do to make a living. There's no such thing in rehab in the kingdom that Jesus is bringing in. You don't need cancer treatments and chemotherapy in the kingdom that Jesus is bringing in. You won't have tainted fellowship in, in the kingdom that Jesus is bringing in. You won't have indwelling sin that you're trying to battle and fight in the new kingdom that Jesus is bringing in. You will only, only, only experience the goodness and the beauty of Messiah and the kingdom that is coming. And the million dollar question that Isaiah is trying to answer is, yes, Lord, you're going to take the glory gloomless gloom the gloom and the darkness and you're going to bring it light you're going to turn it to gladness and the million dollar question is what son's going to do that what son and guess what my name ain't in here and your name ain't in here and no son you birth name is in here it's one person who's going to repair the world and his name is Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And we will call his name Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His kingdom will have no end. And in beautiful irony, beloved, Isaiah in 2 Kings goes to Ahaz's son, Hezekiah. And he tells Hezekiah, you're a good king. But when you die, your sons will be carried into Babylon and they will become eunuchs. You know what that means? The line of David is threatened. And when you show up in Matthew 1, 
Guess who's in Jesus' genealogy? Ahaz, Hezekiah. God ain't finna let the lineage of the Messiah fall. He himself will do it sovereignly and beautifully. And he'll do this through this child, this child born of a virgin conceived by the Spirit, fully God and truly man, this child born in the Middle East to an unwed mother, this child who would hide his word in God's heart and never sin against God, this child who would grow to love God and neighbor, this child who would love the Lord his God with his whole mind and heart and soul and strength. It's this child that we call Jesus or Yeshua, the child that Isaiah has already called Emmanuel. He's going to also be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And in the book of Isaiah, names and titles aren't just names to differentiate people from people. No, there are promises attached to the names. And so when God tells Isaiah, take your son whose name means remnant and go tell Ahaz, don't be afraid. It isn't just he named his son that. God is making a promise to Ahaz, don't worry, I got it. All of these names and these titles, they are not just to distinguish people, but they actually embody real promises of God to his people. And you have a five-fold promise from God to you. First, that your Messiah is coming as a child, a son. It's tempting to overlook this in this list of four other things, but we can't. No other religion has God themselves Becoming like humans. No other religion that God would condescend and take on flesh and be born as we're born. And there's no room for him in the end. He would flee for his life, that he would be attempted to be killed, that he would know what it's like to cry for food and to work with his hands, and to go through puberty, and to endure all temptations that we do except without sin, that we have a Messiah in Jesus who knows our frame, and he is like us, and he is with us. We have in Jesus a wonderful counselor or an excellent advisor, that if you go back and look at Isaiah 3, one of the problems in Israel was their godless advisors. The judges were false. The prophets were false. The magicians were hoaxes. They were experts in charms and fortune tellers, and they had bad counsel. And what God is saying, no, 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 I'm not going to let that continue. I'm going to send a son, and he's going to be a wonderful counselor. He's going to reveal to you what is true and good and righteous and holy. He's going to be called mighty God. And this is breathtaking because on the one hand, he's a son born of a woman. On the other hand, you're going to call this son God. What is up with that? That, that, that the, the road is being prepared for a Messiah who is truly God and truly man, fully God and fully man. We have in Jesus a mighty, powerful, strong God who uses his power to deliver and to save and to repair what is broken and to put things back together in a way that no human can. He's going to use his power to go on a cross and it will be powerful for him to stay on it and not get up 
and to become sin for us, that in him we would become the righteousness of God. It's a power arising from the dead, curing blood and, and curing leprosy type of power, a power that triumphs over Satan, a power that goes in his house and plunders him and all of his minions, a power that we have not seen before. And it's all bound up in this son who is fully God and fully man. And in Jesus, we have an everlasting father. Now think about this. Isaiah is not calling Jesus the father. He's, I think he's letting us know that he will lavish us with fatherly care. Think about that. He's tender and affectionate. And he's present. He'll discipline us if we need discipline. He'll encourage us. He wants our best interests. He stands at guard at night and looks at a camera and wants to protect his own. Except he does it way better than any earthly father can do. That what you have in Jesus is a beautiful, 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 tender relationship with God Almighty where he takes us who are orphans and he brings us into this everlasting forever family. I don't know if you watch Maggie Way, but Maggie Way used to do this special on, on, on fostering and adoption. And once a week, she will introduce you to a kid in the foster system. And she'll say, hey, I'm here with Jadarius today. And he's 13 years old. And he loves to play basketball. He loves to do creative writing. And what he wants is a forever family. He doesn't want to keep changing homes and changing beds. He wants continuity. What Isaiah is saying about Jesus, he brings you into the forever family of God, never to leave you, never to cast you out. He is the prince of peace. There is fracture happening in Israel and in Judah. Fracture between people, fracture between God, fracture between creation. And what you have in the Lord Jesus is one who's going to bring about shalom. He's going to go to a cross and lay down his life to reconcile you and me to God forever. And he's going to empower you by the Spirit to live shalomed lives here on earth, even with your enemies. And a day is coming right now. Creation is groaning and waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. But Jesus says, yeah, I'm going to fix that too. Do you see that what you have in Jesus is all of this? And here's the great news. We aren't waiting for the child to come. He's already come. We're waiting for the adult Jesus to come back. But the promises that hinge off of this son, they're now. And so here's what it means, like right here this moment. It means that right now, if you're in Jesus, you can have gladness in the midst of the gloom right now. He is a wonderful counselor to you. Right now, he's a mighty God to you. He fixes things. 
He delivers us from strongholds. He triumphs over death so that we can lay loved ones in the grave. And we know that, that they are absent from the body, but they are present with Jesus. And at the sound of a trumpet and the, and the voice of an archangel, we believe that Jesus will return and the dead in Christ will rise. And so therefore, even in the midst of the tears, we can still rejoice in hope because our Messiah is that strong that he has overcome death. He has overcome hell. He has overcome the grave. We can have that power power and that comfort right here and now. He's an everlasting father. When you feel orphaned and misunderstood, it is your Jesus who makes his presence known to you in a special way. He is there. He is with you in your pain and in your sorrow. He will never drive you away. He's the prince of peace for you now. He gives you peace of conscience so that you can sleep at night. He gives you power to pursue reconciliation with people here on earth right here and now. He gives you this gaze of the future where all will be well with us and creation and God forever. He drops that in on us now so that we are not overwhelmed with gloom. What's the guarantee that this is true? It's because we believe that Jesus faced the gloom head on. He saw the cross and he went to it. He ran to it. He set his face like flint toward Jerusalem. And he went and he became sin for us and darkness swallowed him up. And the grave swallowed him up. And three days later, he got up. He defeated the darkness. He defeated death. He defeated the grave. And if we are in him, this is ours. Darkness will not get the last word. You can be glad. You can taste glory. In part right now, but in full one day soon. In full one day soon. Brene Brown says that there's a full spectrum of human emotions, and when we numb the dark, we numb the light. While I was taking the edge off of the pain, I was also unintentionally dulling my experiences of good feelings like joy. This piece of research has changed my daily life like nothing else. If you know a little bit about her story, the shame was overtaking her and she was using alcohol to numb the pain and to numb the darkness of the world. And that was her discovery. If I numb what is dark, you know what else I numb? My capacity to have joy. But if through Jesus we see the darkness and own it and look at it and be driven down and low into postures of need, 
That is where light breaks in down here when we are debased and we are needy and we are at our wit's end and we can do nothing about the world. It is then and there in that place that Jesus's light then shines upon us and we are driven up. And so here's what I want for us this, this, this year, Redeemer. See the darkness, own it, call it what it is. Don't numb, but also see and rest in the light. Rest in the light. Let's pray together. Father, our hearts break over what we see and hear and experience on TV, in our own hearts, in our own lives. Father, there are numerous people grieving in this body right now. I see it. I pray that they will see that darkness does not win, that you have overcome hell and the grave and Satan and his tyranny and our sin. It is true what John has written. The light was coming into the world and the world loved darkness, but the darkness did not drive out the light. Father, I pray that you would indeed, by your spirit, break into the hearts of our lives, restore glory and gladness where there is gloom. May your name be praised. Amen.